G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is a special episode. Yes, we do them. And uh, only when the occasion calls for it, and I reckon this one does. Um, I'll tell you why in a sec, but we are brought to you by Palmerbet. Play the punting advantage this footy season. Always remember to gamble responsibly, as I say, very good morning to my co-host, Mark Fine, and uh, he's going to say good day and give a plug to a couple of our other sponsors, aren't you, Fine? Certainly, yeah. Special edition deserves special sponsors, and who's more special than at Berg, a place that's been open for 80, getting on 83 years. It's quite amazing. Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, proud sponsors of Footyology in its many guises. And so are Nick Spartel's team down at West Point Properties. Inner South Melbourne, Eastern Melbourne, great builds, great renovations, both great sponsors for this very special episode. And our other important partner is Stats Insider, the sports and data-driven industry leaders providing model projections and analysis for more than 15 sports across the world, sampling an event 10,000 times, believe it or not, to give you the best range of possible outcomes. Great website too, statsinsider.com.au. Check it out. Okay, the reason we're doing this, and you may have heard us talk about this on uh, Footyology Final Siren last week, but there is a fantastic new book out about the AFL industry and the political machinations uh, therein. It is called The Boys Club and is written by Herald Sun football ju- oh, senior football journalist, we better call him, Mick Warner. Um, it is a terrific book. It really, look, in short, I could talk about it for hours, but in short, um, it basically lifts the lid, I think, on the level of politics and, uh, well, at times, blatant nepotism and cronyism that is infested not even just the AFL itself, but the entire game. Um, and a lot of the incidents and um, events that it talks about, I, th- I think we know about on a superficial level, but finding out about the goings-on behind them and, and the AFL's attempts to stage manage outcomes, I think is uh, it, it is a real eye-opener and, and not necessarily in a good way. Um, I couldn't put it down. It's one of the... <laughs> I don't think I've read many books in my life a lot quicker than I read this one. It's just gripping stuff. Um, Finey, you've had a read of it. What do you make of it? Well, likewise, I'm not really a a voracious reader. I'm not the sort of person that would consume a book in a day and a bit. I I tell you, the Boys Club is almost a a natural name for the book, but it could also be all your suspicions confirmed. brilliantly researched and, and and backed up. But there's, I think, been a sense amongst the football-loving public 
that there is at the very pointy end of management of Australian rules football, there's something not quite right. And it's just to read it there in front of you, to see it laid out. And, and we'll speak to Michael about some of these stories that probably sat uncomfortably with football fans, but now sit out there in the open for all to discuss in its uncomfortable glory. Well, no one better to talk about this book than the man who wrote it. And we're very pleased to have him on. How are you, Mick? I'm very well. Thanks for having me, Rowan and Finey. Uh, no, pleasure, mate. Look, uh, congratulations on the book. It really is outstanding work. Um, a lot of questions we're looking forward to asking you about it. I guess right off the top, um, my first thought whilst reading it was... Uh, Wow, you haven't you haven't held back. There's some pretty brave uh, journalism going on here. How's the reaction been, both uh, I guess from your colleagues in the football media and journalistically, but probably more importantly from the powers that be? Has there been a lot of blowback? Well, as you would probably expect, there's been crickets from your sort of mainstream football media who don't like talking about these things at all, so they just simply haven't. Um, I think the football public, I've been quite um, overwhelmed by the response, and I, and I think that says something about what the general public must think of their mainstream football media as a rule, and certainly in terms of the way they report on the governance of the game. I'm, I started... Uh, the Herald Sun in 1998, but only started reporting full-time on footy in 2008. So I'm a lot like younger than you guys in terms of having seen it all. But um, on and off during the 2000s, I was reporting on things like the, the West Coast saga, etc. So I had a, a bit of an understanding of the way the industry worked. And it just frustrated me, to be honest, the way that we, we would have a big scandal in the game. It would be sort of uh, a preferred outcome would be reached by the AFL, which we all knew was unsavoury. You think about tanking or the Essendon saga. We'd all talk about it for a couple of weeks and then with the caravan just moves on, doesn't it? And all is forgiven. And yeah. so I figured if I write it all down in one place, at least it sits there for, for the public um, to see once and for all that what I say is a disturbing pattern of behaviour. But to answer your question, it's... it's um, it hasn't really got any traction in the football media and that doesn't surprise me at all. Well, what about the AFL itself? I mean, surely someone from there has even had a an off-the-record conversation with you about it or wanted to dispute events or uh, back them up or whatever? Or what's the sort of... No, uh, no I haven't heard from anyone at AFL House. Is um, that right? Um, but then, then again, I don't have a very close relationship with AFL House. Um so, but no, I haven't, I haven't heard from them. Obviously, they're busy with COVID. But most of the things in the book, uh, Rowan, are sort of been around about in the press before, probably a lot of it written by me. But this is a, was almost a, a dot joining exercise, wasn't it, to show the extent of the, the cronyism and, the, and, the, and, the, and this, this web of connections. It, it really is out of Melbourne. The, the yeah. boys club um but the boys club itself is not just people at afl house it extends right through the industry sadly into journalists and to player agents and lawyers it's a very sophisticated machine and and that's why when a big thing like essendon comes along you, you'd never underestimate the afl strategic capabilities on anything they're not 
I know I love that line from Stephen Amendola, James Hurd's lawyer, that they're a bunch of cashed up bogans, but <laughs> they're actually they're actually a lot more sophisticated than that, and they're very very um, sophisticated operation. Rowan, this is probably a, for you something that you'd understand intimately, but just as a reader without a background in print journalism, Mick brilliantly researched, brilliant, uh, the amount of work that must have gone into it just by reading it seems to be endless. So how much did it take up your life? You, you still have to work, obviously, and yeah. earn a dollar working for the Herald Sun. It must have been all-consuming. I know you've got a young family as well. It was, actually. I've got a two-year-old and a six-year-old, two boys, two and six, and uh, it was about three and a half years ago, so before the second one was born. I was going for a run in Bali, actually. Haven't been for a run since. Um, <laughs> and I had this idea that, like I said, about being frustrated at you know, an issue would surface and then disappear as quickly as it came to write a book. Um, and I don't know if you guys have written books, Rowan, you have, haven't you? It's, oh, um, part, parts of. I haven't got, the, of. Uh, haven't got the patience to write a whole thing. And I have, no, it can be a nightmare. Oh, you have, sorry, fine. Yep. What, yep. what was yours on? The Encyclopedia of International Cricketers, sort of based on the oh, Encyclopedia of Footballers, and boy, did that go on forever. <laughs> yeah, I bet. No, it is. It's totally consuming of your life, and um, I didn't realise the amount of work that would go into it. And um, obviously, everything that's that's there is cross-referenced against uh, you know, documents or, or, or articles at the time. So it was a lot of work, but I really um, just felt that I had to do it and I wanted to do it and I'm, I'm glad I did it. So the, the stuff we're talking about, I mean, for people that haven't read it, you know, the major thing, event, I guess, in this time is the Essendon uh, drug scandal. We've got the Melbourne tanking scandal. We've got the Kurt Tippett salary cap scandal, the um, whispers at the kennel, for want of a better phrase, the uh, leaking of information from Bulldog player Michael Talia, there's stuff about appointments, sponsorship deals, whatever. What in your research for this, and you, and you did do, I, I felt I could tell straight away, you know, the amount of interviews you did particularly was was quite remarkable. But of all the information you received and took on board from people, was there a single thing that sort of surprised you the most? Well, yeah, there was one that... Um... I was in interviewing about the West Coast Eagles illicit drug saga, which you'd well remember with famously with Ben Cousins uh, with the shirt off, you know, where was he at Northbridge that morning when he, those pictures went around the country, didn't they? And then, and then that was just the tip of the iceberg of a massive story yeah. for, for West Coast. And um, when I was looking at that one, because West Coast was never actually punished for governance failings as a club. So clearly the club had allowed this culture to fester, and I got my hands on the Gillard report, if you remember, which was a, a the, the AFL got a retired Supreme Court judge to conduct an investigation in what had been going on at the Eagles. Now, they only, only ever made three copies of that report, and they were pretty confident that it would never surface. But in about 2017, I, I was able to source that uh, report, which clearly proved that there'd been a decade of rampant illicit drug use at West Coast, pretty much unchecked uh, and been covered up by both West Coast, but, but more importantly by the league because 
um, they had gone to all sorts of extremes to make sure that that document never surfaced. And when I was um, sort of investigating that aspect of it, it was put to me that Andrew Demetriou, who was the CEO of the AFL, had been in a business partner of Dalton Gooding, who was the West Coast Eagles chairman. Mm. And when I first heard that, I thought, well, that's just that just cannot be right because, well, can I ask you two gentlemen, did you know about that? No, no, I, I certainly didn't. <laughs> so it wasn't a, it, no. yeah, it, it wasn't a massive one in terms of, um, you know, I don't make a huge song and dance about it in the book, but what it staggered me was that um, that this association had been sort of happened without Dimitri recusing himself from from the or at least the telling the, the football public by the way you know I'm in business have been in business with with the chairman of this club so I guess that um, in terms of was there was something new that I found for the book and it goes to all these themes that I say that's it's a very closed shop invites only boys club and there's just a lot of things that happen that the public aren't told about mm. Mm. and i mean the key it, it seems to be that the, the key moment where afl football went went into a boys the it went into this boys club was the seeding of powers by the the board that ran the game to the executive and to the ceo and that is a, a common theme throughout the book isn't yeah. it nick that, yeah that this this handing over of power was basically an invitation to pigs at the trough. Well, if you think about that, the commission system came in in 1984 and it had to because the VFL board of directors, which was basically, you know, a, a person from each club board would sit on this other board, but self-interest ruled and, and the commercialism of the game. It, we needed a body, obviously, um, to, of some sorts and, then we had the the commission with people like Scanlon and Graham Samuel and, and Dick Seddon. Um, but then in 1993, we had the Crawford report and it really supercharged the commission system away from the clubs, uh, which was probably a good thing as well. But somewhere along the line, and John Kennedy um, was the first commission chairman and the, the, the original commissions were sort of, full of people who understood football, um, who were hands-on in football. But along the way, it sort of morphed into this other situation that we have now where you've got a, the commission is not where the power is in the game of football at all. That's the executive. And that happened under Demetriou, passed on to McLaughlin. And the commission really is most of them live interstate. Um, none of them really have any football background. I know Andrew Newbold, to be fair, was a chairman of Hawthorne when they won three premierships. But the football IQ at the commission is is almost non-existent. And it really annoys me that you, you have such great football people around Kevin Bartlett or Lee Matthews or Mick Moldhouse, Dennis Pagan. Yeah, it goes on and on. These, these people with so much knowledge of the game, none of them on the commission. What That doesn't make any sense to me. But then below that is the executive and that's that's where the power is and that's where a lot of this sort of policing of integrity investigations to put the commercial interests of the game ahead of the truth if you like uh, it's where this is this culture has been able to fester can i just say Mick, I, I reckon that was probably the thing that educated me the most that seeding of power from the commission to the executive because 
you know, I, I'd sensed that it was happening, but like I, I didn't realise it was actually a almost a formal sort of process, the ceding of powers. And I immediately thought back to, um, you know, like when I was chief footy writer of Sunday Age in, in the mid-90s, we used to have these monthly briefings at uh, AFL House and there'd be like a dozen journos and the commission. And like most of the commission, you'd have Ross Oakley and then later Wayne Jackson, but, you know, say four or five commissioners as well would join us for lunch. We had, you know, Graeme Samuel and Peter Scanlon, uh, I think Bill Kelty when he joined and uh, a series of them. And they were very hands-on. They were fundamentally across the day-to-day business of the AFL. And we had really feisty debates. And I remember during the merger stuff particularly, you know, I had a couple of sort of stand-up, arguments with Graeme Samuel around the lunch table and stuff. But in retrospect, I really appreciate the fact that they were across this stuff and they really did have the game's best interests at heart. Whereas now I actually struggled to name the members of the commission and it really drove home to me the extent to which they are now a rubber stamp and decision-making is basically entrusted to a, a small cabal of people who are basically a law unto themselves. Yeah, absolutely, you've nailed it. And what also happens when that when that that process took place was the secrecy of the organisation grew, the lack of transparency, um, the conflicts of interest, um, and the policing of integrity. And so you had this situation where the clubs, who actually used to pick commissioners, um, no, that was no longer the case. That the commission would just pick people, you know, they'd have a, a nominations committee, but you'd have people like Eddie Maguire on it who you always walk both sides of the street as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so it was sort of a, a self-perpetuating state of play where the, the commission was um, looking after itself and the executive was ruling the roost. And one of the things that Graham Samuel says in the book is, um, you know, and I'm sort of paraphrasing it a bit, but it's all well and good to blame Dimitri or McLaughlin, um, but it's actually the chairman's job to rein in the CEO, to police and keep an eye on what the executive is doing. And he was saying uh, in his instance that he didn't think Fitzpatrick, Mike Fitzpatrick, had um, was sufficiently enough engaged, was his term, in terms of what was happening, and that clearly... Is, is, is regards to the Essendon saga. Um, and so, and Richard Goiter at the moment, you know, he lives in Perth. He's the chairman of Qantas and Woodside. There's a COVID pandemic. I imagine that a lot of his uh, time and effort is spent elsewhere. The game deserves more than that. Mm. To me, the, 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 there must be a, a commissioner, AFL commission chairman, who's able to spend pretty much full time on that job. And if he's not, find someone else. Mick, I get a sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, that things went awry almost, I'll call it from the hot dog on. From It, it seems as though the, the moment in time where the executive and the commission both sort of had their fingerprints all over this was the spotless contracts at the MCG and then onwards and that incredible story, and you can explain it about getting the rights in WA, and it seems from that point on, it was everything was fair game. And it, it might have even opened Demetrius' eyes to possibilities and, and then McLaughlin's eyes to possibilities thereafter. Yeah, that was a, you know, the, today, if you could imagine that the AFL Commission chairman was also 
running a catering business that had contracts at all the stadiums. I just don't think that would pass the, the sniff test. But that was the case with Ron Evans, who everyone you speak to talks in, in glowing terms of. But it was a blatant conflict of interest that he had. And it was Ron Evans and Bill Kelty who really identified Andrew Demetrio as the, as the person that they wanted to... Um, toughen up the AFL. They'd had this, the Ross Oakley period that you you were talking about, Rowan, where you know it was a, it was a tragic time in terms of mergers, and um, so they went for a soft touch after that with Wayne Jackson, who um, I didn't know much about, but mm. uh, he was certainly the less uh, what well, confrontational or less controversial AFL CEO we've we've had. Um, but then after. After that, I think they wanted to go back to that sort of attack dog um, type, and they went for for Demetrio. And he certainly, you know, when when Bill Kelty um, did a pay deal with Demetrio, who was running the Players Association, um, he and Ron Evans were very impressed with him and really pushed for him to to become the CEO. And um, I, I guess, given the way that he'd been welcomed into the tent. They, they were encouraging of his style. Oh, yeah. He's an interesting character, Andrew Demetrio. I mean, I remember him as Players Association boss and then he first went into the AFL as footy ops manager. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we could still get away with calling him Gomez then out of uh, the Adams family. That was his nickname. But I, I sort of appreciated the fact that he he was a nuts and bolts footy person, but there's no doubt... Uh, as he was in that CEO's role, the, the more he stayed in that role, the more I think removed from sort of day-to-day nuts and bolts he became. But um, one thing that really fascinates me, and it's more a psychological sort of question, but you know, we, we know about Andrew Demetrio's working-class roots and his upbringing. You know, his parents ran a what was it, a milk bar or a fish, fish and chip shop? Yeah, fish, yeah, it's classic, isn't it? Like it's a real. Oh, know, rags a, to riches. It, it really, yeah. it really yeah. is. But the fact that one of the things that irks me these days, and we talk about the boys' club, is that whole sort of private school element to it, which is really prevalent now. It's constantly coming up. Why is it that a a working class guy who rose to the top seemed to want to surround himself with these? sort of silver spoon types for want of a better phrase. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but it, if you speak to, there was one executive uh, that I spoke to who said, if you went to a Uni Blues old Zavarian's A-grade amateur game, you'd see more AFL executives than you would at Anzac Day. <laughs> um, and it's it's just um, the system, isn't it, that they, they all seem to come from that that area of, of Melbourne. Um, it's... It's just part of that cronyism that I say we it has to get better. Yeah, well, just on that, I mean, it, it is a really fundamental question. And I, I reckon we've seen it with Collingwood over the last couple of weeks. You know, I mean, Jeff Brown is the alternate president. Well, Jeff Brown worked for the AFL for two decades as a legal advisor. He's Eddie's best mate, blah, blah, blah. There's conflicts of interest left, right and centre. Why is not just the AFL, but clubs and why is the game as a whole so unprepared, it seems, to sort of look outside the tent. Because it's what they know. That codependency is everywhere, isn't it, in football? You know, you, you get 
club, some club boards, as I discovered in the book, that the AFL actually picks seven of the nine directors on five of the boards in the competition, including Adelaide and Port Adelaide. Can you imagine the AFL saying we're going to pick the board of Carlton or Collingwood or Richmond? It just we just wouldn't cop it. But there's just so much of that um, that that as I keep saying, the web of connections that everyone seems to be known to everyone else. I mean, Melbourne is is at the heart of it. One idea I don't think would ever fly, but someone put to me, why don't you move the AFL administration out of Melbourne like they did with cricket? They went from London to Dubai, I think it is funny, to um, sort of have a perception that the game's not run out of London. But could that be a fix to Mm. take it out of the heartland, the the, the epicentre of the boys' club? Plonk it somewhere like the Gold Coast. So if you really want to be an AFL administrator, you've got to live up there. I don't know. but well, So we can have it run by the White Shoe Brigade instead. <laughs> well, we've got to break the nexus somehow. Yeah. Anyway, it's just an idea, but the, there is no doubt that this, this network is so established now through player agents and, and whatnot that... Um, and, and like I said, disturbingly, that you know, I'm a journalist, so... I come at this book from the perspective of, of covering stories and um, on the whole, the football media do a great job, but when it comes to shining a light on um, AFL house, I, I don't, I don't think that we can say that we, we do well as an industry at all. Well, just, just on that, sorry, Fonny, because I, no, ju- I just want to ask this follow-up because it's a really important point you've raised. You mentioned the lack of a follow-up by the media I've thought about it a lot myself. Like, is it a question of resources? Partly, I suspect it is. There's not as many people. The time demands on on print journalists, particularly, are greater than they were. Uh, is it that the stories are too hard to follow up, and they require the investment of too much time and energy on the part of the journos, or is it as much or more, perhaps, about a not wanting to rock the boat and bite the hand that feeds you, or b some of those people having their own conflicts of interest. Yeah, it's definitely not the first one. I know everyone says there's no resources, but, you know, the commodity of journalism is stories, is it not? And there's plenty of stories. Uh, I mean, I've I've made a career out of reporting on governance stories. And um, I often say that where I want to sometimes go fishing for a story, there's no other rods in the water. And that's because no (laughs) one really wants to. And and it, it does really... Um, dishearten you like why aren't people prepared to have a look over the fence there and see what all of those stories the, the amount of column inches we spent on the tanking or the Essendon or the Talia's you know that we, we, we were obsessed with it at the time so why why do we just simply move on and accept the answer that we were given I know if it was in politics it wouldn't be the case and it's just part of the system really there's not really an appetite for the journalists and many of the senior journalists as well to to sort of go down that path. Yeah, That's, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll answer it. Yeah, Why? On. Because because a certain journalist at the age wouldn't be able to write half the articles she wrote without the conduit to AFL House, so she needed to be friendly. Um, a certain journalist at the Australian towards the end of his career seemed to lose his battle for the fight, and also favoured getting information out of AFL House rather than take them on. You know, I mean, I really like Mike Sheehan, but 
he always said of the AFL, they might get the little things wrong, but they get the big things right. And I guess he thought one of the big things was having a media centre named after him. Look, it's you, you take them on at your own peril. You 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 lose a lot of the the benefits that they dangle in front of a journalist if you do what you've done, Mick. Mm. Uh, so there's two measuring sticks of the AFL that, that I. Uh, you know, the, the commercial might of the game, you can't dispute it. They have turned, you know, this suburban game played on muddy grounds that we grew up loving into this extraordinary five-state, 18-team competition. Okay, some of the teams like Gold Coast are, you know, struggling, but the, the, the actual um, commercial size of it, 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 there are 20 goals up on their opposition. But I say that the other measuring stick is the way you treat people, transparency, accountability, commitment to integrity. And that score, they're 20 goals down and they have to be so much better. And that's where it does annoy me. But, you know, to, to I guess there are difficulties for, for journalists. Unlike a government, they don't ever get voted out. If you take on the, the Rudd government, well, they'd be get voted out in four years or whatever and you could sort of have a new government. But with the AFL, it's the same mob. So once you're offside with them, you're out. And that, and that really, that to me is the heart of the book, that good people have been not only stepped on, had their reputations sullied, and in some cases their lives almost ruined because of the, because of the arrogance of the AFL. Yeah. And, and I want to talk about James Heard for a moment. I mean, really, what right does a Gillan McLaughlin, or more importantly, an Andrew Demetriou, have to sacrifice the reputation of one of the game's greatest ever players simply to meet his end to a problem that was about to beset the AFL with the Asada-Essendon affair and, and without any regard for, for the human being. Well, this is why there's a big push for a national sports integrity body. Now, it's a bit boring, but that the old Asada has fallen under a, a, this Sports Integrity Australia banner. And what they're saying is that they want the right to police all of these major integrity investigations. For example, the tanking at Melbourne, that was a, a matter that affected everyone who ever had a bet in 2009 on a Melbourne game. And I know that you probably shouldn't have been because they were pretty bad, but people were betting on it. They were all basically robbed of their money because we now know with the transcripts that I got my hands on as well, that that nine Melbourne officials confessed to a conspiracy to lose matches, but the AFL came up with this, they concocted this other outcome to protect their commercial interests and make sure they weren't in breach of any of their gambling licences. So it's just totally unsatisfactory that the AFL is allowed to police these things that, so if you could have this national body that could take it away from the sport, but then if you put yourself in the shoes of the sport, why would you ever surrender that um, power to someone else? If you can, mm. if you're your own world governing body um, and as arrogant as the AFL is, why would you even consider that? And the answer is you wouldn't. So maybe you force them to, and the way you force them to, and I say this in the book is the AFL doesn't pay tax. 
how can it be that a, an organisation that brings in $800 million a year in revenues pays itself secret salaries? No one knows what Gillian McLaughlin gets paid. We know that Dimitri got paid $3.8 million in his last year. $3.8 million is four times more than Dustin Martin gets now. What a joke. Hmm. But they can do it because they do whatever they like. And what I'm saying with, with these governments, if you want to use the MCG, if you don't want to pay tax, if you want to use the SCG, you have to be in the National Sports Integrity um, umbrella and we will police all of your... But there's no government out there that's brave enough to take them on. Just just returning quickly to the Essendon thing, and, and you could talk about this all day, couldn't you? There's been other books written about this one, but I think there's the punters have a lot of interest in why various um, media outlets took the stances they did, and it was... I think pretty widely seen that the the age was pretty anti-Herd and anti, to a lesser extent, Essendon, and the Herald Sun was probably pushing their cause more. Um, I certainly, I mean, I'll put my hand up here at, at the age. I, I had no, I thought the age's news coverage was great. I had some real issues with some of the commentary. Um, but why, why do you think, it sort of fell that way, Mick. Well, because there's two sides to the story, Rowan. There's two two enormous sides to the Essendon saga. And I try to tell this in, the, in my chapter, Cashed Up Bogans, that the first story was obviously what Essendon was doing with its supplements program, which was reckless. It was probably worse. It was ad hoc. They were... Um, all these offside injections. It was completely unacceptable. We know that. But then there was the story, which I say is just as big, if not bigger. And that is the way that the AFL manipulated and compromised and moved into action, created a strategy to try and protect basically its TV rights. Because if they saw the Armageddon scenario of, wow, so you're telling us that uh, one of our teams is going to be, has been using performance enhancing drugs and we're going to, they're going to be gone for, you know, two years. Um, they swung into action off the back of that to try and come up with an alternative punishment which was protect the players therefore protect the money and let's blame everyone else now James Heard um, never got a show cause notice you know why that is because none of the evidence said that he was directly responsible for what was happening like Dean Robinson or uh, Stephen Dank what mm. did Dean Robinson get he got a one million dollar payout yeah because yeah. because he, he he his lawyer David Galbally cleverly um, uh, subpoenaed all the AFL officials to go to the Supreme Court, which they dropped like a hot potato. So there's two sides of the story. The age just weren't interested in the other side of the story. And um, to me, that's basically letting down their readers because, um, yes, Essendon behaved abhorrently, but the, uh, the tip-off and what flowed from there was just as bad. And um, I think, to be fair, the Herald Sun covered both sides of the stories um, as, as equal. Um, yes, we were obviously across what was happening on the other side of the fence, but the, I think the, the perception you have that it was only because the Herald Sun was supporting her because we were the only one who were actually writing about that side of the story. Yeah. Now it did appear from the outside, you can answer this as well, Rowan, that at the age, Caroline Wilson was ahead of the game, getting information maybe directly from Andrew Demetriou. And at the Herald Sun, Robbo was ahead of the game, getting information directly from James Hurt. 
Well, I think, well, well just quickly, I, I think in the case of the age, also you had uh, Richard Baker and Nick McKenzie, you know, crack investigative journos. They certainly weighed in on it with some, you know, with some decent stuff. I mean, like I said, I, I thought the news coverage was fine. I thought the commentary, some of the age's commentary was pretty ordinary. And probably the nadir of that for me was, um, oh, you know, Caro talking about Tim Watson caring more about the club than he did his own son. Uh, you know, I know, I know Tim was particularly um, angry and upset about that one. And I felt rightly so, you know. Geez, you, it wasn't... you know what? Yeah, go Sorry, on. You know why all of that happened? Because... It, because the AFL set in plan a strategy that blew up in the face. It ripped everyone in the game to shreds. Yeah. Look at Cronulla. They said, righto, you've got nothing. What if, and, and they sat back. They didn't come up with some harebrained scheme to, you know, do what, to compromise it. They just waited. Asada couldn't land a glove on them. They got a five-week sort of um, agreed penalty and they won a premiership two years later. Yeah, but the, um, a the AFL would turn around though and say that they offered Essendon uh, an easy get-out that they didn't want to take, whereas if they had a, you know, when they were trying to But it to was too it... late. By the time they, they compromised the thing within 24 hours, Ron, it was too late Yeah, to go back and um, try and correct no, they outsmarted themselves, Essendon, uh, the AFL, mm. spectacular. They under, As Peter Scanlon said, they underestimated the vehemence of Asada. If you remember that disgraceful um, situation where they were trying to send James Hurd to Oxford, um, they were he got paid uh, his full salary before Christmas so that they could save face when Dimitri said, I'll go to my grave knowing he's not getting paid. Yes, yeah. Um, all of that stuff, you know... <laughs> It just now, just talking about it now, it makes me angry. The way that 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 the the, the complete integrity failings on the AFL side, let alone Essendon's in that saga. Some of the really hardest hitting moments in the book, uh, Mick, when you just highlight that we didn't know what club was involved, that I don't know what tanking is. I mean, they really are the the clearest moments of a. a an executive out of control or at least chief executives that believe that they're above the truth. It, it was chilling moments almost. And that's why you got all these presidents currently saying we need a review, which is being strongly resisted by Richard Goiter and Gil McLaughlin. But it's been 28 years since we had a review. You should review yourself every five years, at least as a business, um, a serious review. Um, and they're resisting it. I don't know why. Well, we do know why, because they want to hang on to their power, but we're long overdue. We should have a total overhaul of the of the governance of the game. And um, I don't think it would be actually that difficult a fix. Well, one of the... Um, you, you didn't really write about this in the book. I think actually you did mention it, but uh, I wanted to ask you about 2013 when you were actually stripped of your accreditation and couldn't cover the finals because... I, look, I've always argued, because it's been my own experience, that, you know, I've had plenty of robust debates with the AFL about stuff and it hasn't, I haven't suffered, I haven't felt like I suffered as a result. Now, I, I hasten to add, they've been about things like the holding the ball rule, not about <laughs> yeah. potential corruption. So the stakes are a bit lower. And I was absolutely gobsmacked when I heard 
what had happened to you because I, di- I didn't hear about it until a bit later and I, I like could scarcely believe it. Um, but the public certainly have a perception that uh, if, you, if you're a media person and you criticise the AFL, it comes at some cost. And after your example, I, I think I understand why they have that view. Can you just tell us what actually happened with that, how that unfolded? Yeah, well, I had a, um, a media pass that expired at the end of the home and away season. I think that uh, uh, quite a number of accredited journalists or media, as I think they say, there's over a thousand um, AFL accreditations floating out there, whether it's photographers or cameramen and camera people, uh, right, journos. And I had one that expired at the end of the year and I was working for 3AW um, as a boundary rider and doing pregame uh, and when I applied for my, uh, uh, well, when 3AW or Herald Sun, whoever it was, applied for my finals pass, it was it was rejected. And it was said that it was rejected because they didn't like me. And, you know, um, I'm still looking to try and hunt down that three grand that uh, I could have earned that, that September round. But, <laughs> no, I, I just mentioned it briefly in the book because, as I say, they, they make – uh, you know, decisions out, out of personal animus because they can. And that was just my example. I've had a, a long running, um, uh, you know, it, uh, what one thing that really disturbs me as well is young journalists, whether it's, you know, TV or print, they would ring up the AFL, usually that Patrick Keane. Um, and they just, the, just the, the attitude of even that little gatekeeper was like, you know, they, they'd just, bark at you you know what do you, what do you want to know about that for you know in terms it might just be about pie prices or something just meaningless like that but they they've always had this sort of aura of intimidation even at that level and it just mm. went all the way up and it was actually encouraged and um so i i obviously pushed back against that and even back in well 2013 was when the drug saga was was raging i'd written all of that stuff so that's clearly why they they didn't want me covering the game. But that that was never said to you officially. It was always like, you know, you were led to believe that's why it happened. No, it was it was put to my editor Yeah, that, that they didn't like me. Now, I, sorry, just on that, because I, I meant to ask this earlier, but um, as you know, like some of us have been quite critical of News Corp and the Herald Sun for various things, um, not their sports coverage, but... I'm pretty intrigued about, you know, given that you have been such a staunch critic of the AFL and the issues that's caused you, and we just talked about one, what's the AFL relationship with the Herald Sun been like as a result? Have they put well, hate on your editors? Oh, absolutely. They would complain. They, uh, I would say that a day wouldn't go by that they wouldn't complain about me. But, um, you know, um, the... That's just part and parcel. You didn't didn't get the same thing, Rowan, or you know, um, I don't know. Uh, it's to me, it's just a, a part of what I do. I know that mm. they're always wide anting me somewhere in the background, but it doesn't worry me. I just try to, as I say, the one thing that doesn't lie is documents. If you can get your hands on the Eagles report or the tanking transcripts or the Essendon tapes, whatever, they can't dispute that. And there's yeah. plenty of that stuff around. I'm sure they're probably moving into some sort. I hope they're not using that same app. But uh, anyway, um, it's no, it's just part and parcel of of journalism. I think there's always whether you're reporting on a government or something. But the AFL, they're particularly good at um, 
trying to undermine reporters. And have your editors been supportive of you? Yeah, well, I'm still there. Yeah. I'm still, uh, I'm still, I'm sure I've made life a little bit difficult for people from time to time, but no, I've been, I've been um, supported the whole way. Mick, back, back to the book and you did get great support in terms of backing up a lot of these stories and getting the, the back, backroom information required to really make them what they were from people like Peter Gordon, Jeff Kennett, and others, of course, Graham Samuel. I mean, it, read the book and find out who was forthcoming. Were there any people that you would have loved to have been able to use as a resource that just said, no, mate, not, can't, yeah. help, can't help you? Hundreds of, the door hun- on you? Well, hundreds of... There's not much upside for people to, to rock the boat, is there? So there was, there was a lot of people who were just, you know, either too scared or too worried about the damage that would would be done on their club. Peter Gordon was a fascinating one because if you remember in the Essendon saga, he was actually the one who read that letter out on behalf of the 17 other clubs about why they thought Essendon should not go to court and should keep it all in house. Mm, And then when he was chairman of the club, when the Talia brothers matter uh, occurred, he actually got a firsthand taste of the way that AFL integrity actually it operates, which we all know. I don't know if you know the story that well, but Kyle Cheney, t- basically, it was the outcome the AFL reached. He was playing a practical joke on Luke Beveridge by telling him that, oh, yeah, when we beat you last night in the final, we had inside information. I just want to ask you there, do you reckon a player would ring up the coach of another team and come up with some elaborate ruse as a practical joke? after losing a final by seven points. Only if he had a pretty shit-ass sense of humour. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's Bill Clinton-like in its a, a way of restructuring the truth, isn't it? No, oh, right. And anyway, so Peter Gordon was, was saw for himself the way that, that the AFL integrity part, which I say AFL integrity is the greatest irony in Australian sport, yeah and, disapp- well, yeah. yeah, and disappointingly, and the, the book bears this out, is almost the, the KGB, apologies, Rowan, like attitude of the integrity unit in policing some of these and interviewing people, showing no respect. Falling asleep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's asleep. right, yeah. That's an absolute ripper. But either, <laughs> yeah, either, either turning a, a blind eye or a sleeping eye or just really coming down very heavily on people that they're interviewing, that that seems to be overstepping your mark yeah. as a football we, organisation. We deserve better, yeah. don't we? Finey, is there some particular reason you apologise to me then? Is it because you think I'm a card-carrying member of the KGB? or? <laughs> well, what, well, what do you reckon? I mean, yeah, I said KGB. I thought, uh, Apologies. Not, not a member for, of the KGB. Finey likes to perpetuate this sort of urban myth that I'm a card-carrying communist, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, a, a couple more. A, a, we talked about Eddie Maguire a couple of times in, in passing, and you talked about him walking both sides of the fence. Um, Straight. What, can you, just on the Collingwood thing, this is sort of away from the book, but mm. I've got to say, I, I, I just can't see any feasible way that an alternate Collingwood ticket led by Jeff Brown wouldn't have Eddie's fingerprints all over it. Do you? 
Well, he's very, very strong on saying, in fact, he, he said that people who were intimating that he was involved with liars on his um, Fox, what did he show, um, footy classified last week. Um, he's at pains to say that he's he's not involved and you know, like he is one of Jeff Brown's best friends and one of them's godfather to one of their, not sure which way it goes, but their children. Um, but he... He's a fascinating character in the book, Eddie Maguire, because I say that, like, for example, what about that mum, Sarah, who called up his, oh. his breakfast radio show? Just So, so just, who, who do you reckon it was? I don't. Do you believe Sarah was real? Uh, I've got serious doubts over it. Yeah. And I also have serious doubts over the, why you would put someone to air without knowing their name or their phone number or, you know, it's such a heightened... It was the morning after the, what I think was the, one of the most spectacular press conferences I've ever been to. I don't know if you were there, Ron, but or finally when Heard and Paul, Paul Little, Little at the Alston Hotel in South Yarra. Yeah, no, I watched it on TV. <laughs> it was an extraordinary. I don't know why we were at the Alston. I'm still wondering what we were doing there. Maybe it was they didn't want to. It was around the corner from Paul Little's office, but they basically declared war on Demetrio and McLaughlin and called for the commission to intervene in the Essen saga. And the next morning, this mum called Sarah bobs up on Eddie McGuire's breakfast radio show. Sort of, and if you look at her quotes too, they're they're very um, clever, saying, "Well, it's basically." You know, all about morality here. Forget whether they took performance-enhancing drugs. So, yeah, I've always had my suspicions over who Sarah the mum is, but it was just one in an incredible series of coincidences through that Essendon saga. All right, look, I've got one more to ask you. Um, again, it's not directly about the book, but it goes to what we're talking about, about media lack of follow-up. Um, and... I certainly think both major newspapers <clears throat> and other organisations have been really sort of, I don't know, asleep at the wheel almost with this one. But speaking of significant stories, I feel like Russell Jackson of the ABC has broken a very, very important story about the existence of basically pedophile networks operating in old VFL clubs, little league sides. And it first came up with his incredible story about Rod Owen, the, the St Kilda prodigy who went off the rails. And then that became a story about the bigger picture with that issue at St Kilda. And then last weekend, again, another follow-up with the same situation at Carlton. And I believe that it could possibly even be another club coming with this. I have been absolutely gobsmacked that none of the other major media outlets have even touched this story. In fact, the only single follow-up piece I've seen was off Fox footy, and that was basically just rewriting what Russell had written. But, I mean, at least they did that. Can I just ask you, and, like, without prejudice, because there may maybe there is a reason I haven't thought of, why haven't the Herald Sun or the Age followed that story up? No, I, I don't know the answer to that, but one one thing you got me thinking there with, with Russell's work is he he's sort of – he's coming at the game, isn't he, from a totally different perspective of, of the – the, uh, I mean, the media cycle is so predictable, isn't it, that what we do, okay, Carlton lost to West Coast Monday, Carlton, we all just go there yeah, and we yeah. talk about that and and tomorrow we'll be talking about wherever the spotlight goes and and, and a credit to, to Russell Jackson and his journalism with, um, you know, he's looking in, like I was saying before, he's, he's 
he's looking for stories in places that the mainstream media aren't. But yeah, it 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 is something that should be followed up, and um, we'll see what we can uh, we can do on that front for you, Ron. But yeah, he's he's a he's an exceptional new journalist on the, not he's not that he's a young young fella, but on the on the AFL scene. Yeah, he's done some incredible work. Yeah. And just a couple from me, Mick, before we let you go. And one of them is towards the end of the book and that wraps up a lot of these stories is going back to speak to key figures to get their final overview of where the AFL sits and how they rate the administrations, particularly of Demetrio and McLaughlin. And I've got to say that Jeff Kennett's summation of where the game sits and how important it is to particularly the people of Victoria, given his role with Beyond Blue, even in mental health and just the the importance of the game and the, the role of the custodians, to me, hits home. And it's, it's beautifully said. Were you taken by that particular turn of phrase of his? Yeah, and I know that there's a lot of people who are a bit off Jeff Kennett. Uh, Rowan, I'd be interested in your thoughts on him. But he... Um, <laughs> he, he, he but it, but when it comes to he's been the most consistent person in football when it comes to this governance stuff, mm. you know, no matter what you think about him, and he has been saying, you know, when well, he was the premier of Victoria, he'd done all these things. His first president's meeting, he sits down, and he was like, "What is this?" He said that he was blown away by the clinicalness of it all. That the president, you sit there, and we'll tell you you know, this is how it's going to go and the lack of um, transparency they got in terms of the expenditure, et cetera. And so I think he's been a great person to come into the game from outside the boys' club and to look at the way that the game is governed. And you might not agree with some of the some of his politics, but like I say, when it comes to this and the need for review, he's been consistent. You've got Andrew Pridham as well. Peggy O'Neill's there as well now. I mean, we haven't even talked about the mistreatment of women um, in the book and the amount of women who've left at league headquarters, um, you know, uh, some suicidal, um, you know, the, the saying it's an unsafe workplace. So for, to answer your question on, on Kenneth, I think that he's determined to see this through and I think he's got the capabilities to see it through that maybe we can get a review and... And fix the game. Just before your second point, Fanny, that just yep. it is important we bring up the women thing. I'm glad you you brought it up because that is sort of the one thing in the book that the AFL actually has responded to and hopefully starting to address. Yeah, they've said that they're going to investigate it, but it should be an independent investigation. Um, yeah. It shouldn't be them allowed. I think what we've learned enough about the way they investigate things to they should call in a third party. And they should sit down all of these women, many have already spoken to Jeff Kennett, um, and tell their story. And the last one from me is the book, it's almost perfectly written as a tempter for another book, (laughs) opens the the door onto something else that is hugely disturbing, I believe, in not only this country, I imagine globally. It's, It's the positioning of people on boards, and we see so much post-Andrew Demetrius' career in the AFL intersecting again as he sits on boards with people that he had made associations with in football. And one thing rings true. I mean, the, one, the fact about Andrew Demetrius, as Rowan pointed out, 
at least when he ran football, he was a football person, played over 100 games of league football, might never have copped a bump, but still played them. And he gets onto the board of Crown and embarrasses himself, etc. So just a, a quick look, opening the door, peering into the, the self-serving roles that so many people have on committees and, and, and boards of publicly listed companies. Well, you can write that one, Fanny. I'm not writing another. <laughs> well, I, yeah. I was going to ask you, could you could you uh, survive a, a follow up? Do you think no, or not? No, no, I don't think my wife would. Uh, I wouldn't get past the first hurdle. But no, <laughs> I'm not going to write another one. But you know, one little point you made there, which is interesting, is that that, that Dimitri at least had played footy. I reckon there's not enough people who've actually worked in clubs who understand how difficult it is to be a club and to operate as a club and all that, that you need more club people you know, like Peter Gordon or Kennett or um, Andrew Ireland or um, gosh, there's, there's thousands of them. Brian Cook, you know, for example, he's getting out at Geelong. Well, wouldn't you put him on the commission? Try and get some mm. club IQ back into the game. Because what I say is the fix isn't going to be that hard. It actually just comes down to leadership. Well, what, what about a CEO? I mean, I, you cannot, surely they cannot go past Brendan Gale for Gil McLaughlin's successor. Well, what you hear is that they're, they're looking they're looking to go past him, that they're not that. And how, how could that be, that you turn around a basket case, 37-year basket case like Richmond, and you turn them, obviously didn't do it single-handedly, but he was the leader of it with mm. Peggy and, and Hardwick and, and obviously a pretty good playing list. But... Isn't that the model? Yeah. That you want, that well, you want have, to take have, to the Has someone said to you why they might go elsewhere? Um, well, you've noticed this week or in the last few weeks, I don't think the AFL and Richmond are getting along all that well, which I don't understand quite the reasons why I can't just because they don't want to play at uh, Marble Stadium. But, it's so um, good. <laughs> it's probably I don't know, but um, he would be he would be good, Brendan Gale. Having said that, I wouldn't mind you know um, if you went completely outside. Having said that, if the person from outside, they might just get swamped by the boys' club. But what about having a woman um, run the game, lowering the temperature, whether it's as the chairperson or as the CEO? But um, from what I can tell, that won't happen. I think they're positioning uh, Travis Old. Wow. Okay. Uh, hey, uh, Mick, before I say goodbye, and Rowan does as well, now, this book must have TV rights. And I, I do mean that. I think it could make a great miniseries. Just please don't hand it over to Channel 9 because you'll get, it, you'll get it written by somebody out of year 12 and you'll get Vince Colosimo playing Andrew Demetria. So, <laughs> I mean, but it would, be, it would be a great thing, a great treatment for an ABC series. And it could be, given that we're not a, a society of great readers, it could finally open the lid on this to a greater public. That'd be that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Sort of uh, underbelly well, yeah. style, you reckon? I think I think the problem there would be too many media people would be wanting to play themselves in the production. <laughs> we already get enough of them on TV as it is. Um, yeah. Look, we'll wrap it up there. We, we seriously, we could easily get another couple of hours of this because it is just such a, a fascinating and. Uh, really important book, I think. So, look, congratulations again, Mick. It's a it's a wonderful effort. Um, and 
we're not going to let you go without giving it a damn good plug. So people have heard this. They want to read the book. What's the best way of getting their hands on it? Uh, all good bookstalls. Oh, I was for that. <laughs> <laughs> Click and collect if we're going to be stuck in this bloody lockdown. But uh, no, I really appreciate you having me on and uh, thanks for the support. No, good luck with it, mate. It's obviously going well already and uh, it's been great to talk to you about it. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Congratulations. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, uh, that is Mick Warner talking about this fantastic new book, The Boys Club. Uh, Absolutely. I suggest anyone with even a passing interest in the game, read it, because you may not think uh, the politics of football is of interest. Let me assure you, in the way it's put in this, it absolutely is. Um, I'm sure you echo those sentiments, Finey. Yeah, and really, it does affect every person who loves the game, because ultimately, the way the game is run is the, go- the way we view the game, it affects the futures of the clubs that we love and also the rights of a football fan, a member of a club, which we realise in this book has been stripped away to nothing. All right. Well, that's it for this special edition of the Footyology podcast. Make sure you listen to the regular editions, both the midweek uh, round preview and the Sunday night post round uh, review. We're doing so many of these things, it's hard to keep track of them. But uh, if you haven't heard it before, uh, check it out at all good uh, podcast platforms, ACAS specifically, where we do this podcast. Thanks for your company. I hope you found that interesting. We'll catch you later. <laughs>